Welcome to Three Rivers Community Church. I am very glad that it's not 95 degrees outside and the air is working in this building. And I am currently not sweating. And that is a glorious gift of God's grace. And so... This is, this is a good, good time of year. If you would join me, let's pray together, okay? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for your glory and our joy, we come together this morning to set our hearts to seek you and to know you. Holy Spirit, this is your time. Your word is your word. It's not my word. It's not our word. It's your word. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the miraculous work of sanctification to bend our lives around your truth. And God, would you do a work of grace in us and make us radical followers of Jesus Christ, radically and intimately connected to the vine by which you produce much fruit. And we so prove to be your disciples. Would you do that this morning where we pray in Jesus' name for your glory and our joy. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. I'm not a good titler, but if you follow, if you look on the blog at the notes, I always put a title in there. And I'm never creative enough to actually give it a cool name. I just sort of pull off the big picture of the text. And, and, and so the big picture, the big idea of the text is the blessing of our sure inheritance. The blessing of our sure inheritance to the praise of His glory. If you remember, chapters 1 to 3 in Ephesians are going to tell us and remind us of who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. I think it's absolutely vital to remember who we are determines what we do. And I spent an inordinate amount of time unpacking that last week off topic of my notes. So I don't want to do that again. But you've got to know, you've got to understand, we have to understand who we are determines what we do. Our identity as in Christ, it affects absolutely everything. Affects everything. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the price and cost of Jesus Christ's life in our place for our sin. And that identity is precious. It's blood-bought. It's deep, it's rich, it's thick. And so before we go rushing off into what to do, which we'll see in chapters 4 to 6, and believe me, there will be enough to keep us busy. Let's continue to drink deeply of our identity. And let's bask in the glory of whose we are. And then ask for the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to prepare us to advance the kingdom through the work that He has given and will give us to do. Don't look past the why to the what just yet. Enjoy the why as the fuel for the what. Paul begins verse 11. Let me just read it. With these glorious words we've seen for the past few weeks in Him. So I'm going to read verse 11 through 14. And if you're reading along, read along in the ESV or whatever version you happen to have and uh, read along silently. I'm going to read out loud. <laughs> I just I feel like I'm in class. I don't I normally say that in class. Like I feel like I'm teaching and I just totally went into teacher mode and I just realized that. Sorry, it's not going to like, back down. It's not Monday yet. It's not Monday yet. It's not Monday yet. In him. <laughs> in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul begins verse 11 with those glorious two words in him. We've hit this point quite a bit over the past few weeks. But there's more here that deserves some mentioning. It could be argued that in Christ is a central piece to Paul's theology. Now we've counted, by my count, in uh, the book of Ephesians 33 times Paul uses this phrase and its synonyms. But according to John Mackey, And I put a footnote there. If you're looking along, you can go get the reference. Paul uses those words in Christ in all of his writings of the New Testament some 169 times. Meaning, that's big. That's big. So what might this mean for the Ephesians and what does it mean for us? Well, the first thing i got to say to you is there's so much more. So much more. And so I want to just throw, and it almost feels unnatural and not according to the text, what I'm about to do, but I want to throw three quick items on you this morning dealing with this whole idea of in Him that He's presenting to the Ephesians as a introductory, I guess you could say, way of introducing these last few blessings that we're going to see in these first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. That help us to see this beautiful reality of what it means to be in Christ. Because he's presenting to these Ephesians, this is where you are. This is who you are. Your location and your identity is wrapped up in Jesus. And so I want to give you three just very quick introductory items. Not necessarily in Ephesians. To sort of grease the wheels. For what we're going to see in verse 11 through 14. The first thing I want you to notice here, coming out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, and by the way, it's because he uses this language. He uses three of the 169 examples. Okay? So you want to have some fun? Go just Google in Christ and see what pops up in your Bible references and just go read them. Here's three. Okay? Just three. One of the glorious realities of being in Christ is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Some of you guys may know this as a great Bible memory verse. We have radical transformation that has taken place. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're in Christ this morning, these Ephesians who are in Christ, they are no longer what they were. These Ephesians were pagans who worshipped other gods, who had their feet into the occult. And you read Acts, they brought their stuff and they burned it in the streets because they now had a new allegiance who was seated in the heavenlies and they were in Christ. And now they recognize that's whose they are, that's where they are. And so they're no longer what they were, they are new creatures. If you're in Christ, you are not what you used to be. You are in Christ, you're a branch in the vine, your identity has shifted, your allegiances have shifted. Because you're a new creature. And so therefore, all kinds of, and all manner of glories are available to those who are in Christ. Christ. That's a danger of even bringing this stuff up. I just can't even deal with it. Just mm. if that's who these Ephesians are, that's who we are. We're new creatures. 
We're in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is dynamic unity that is a reality for us. A dynamic unity that is a reality. Paul's going to say in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There are no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He is an erasing distinction. He is making the clear understanding that all of these distinctions are underneath now and in Jesus Christ. We are now one. There's a dynamic unity. That's the whole purpose of the word dynamic. There's this glorious, vigorous, purposeful unity that in diversity we are in Christ and as a result we are one body. This is why Bible believing, gospel preaching, Christians all across the globe are one body, not many bodies. One body, one church. We have union with Christ and with each other. Vigorous and purposeful unity. Imagine, imagine what would happen pursuing this type of racial unity in the body vigorously and purposely like Paul wrote about. We're going to see this and we'll see a little bit of it this morning when we come to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 through verse 22. This glorious reality that in Christ Jew and Gentile are one in Him. Imagine what racial unity would look like in Christ. There is a vigorous and purposeful unity available to the kingdom of God. Because our identity is not white, black, Hispanic, rich, poor, middle class. Our identity is in Christ. Dynamic unity is a reality for the church. And Paul's going to make that point to the Ephesians very clear. And then there's satisfaction in the soul. Satisfaction in the soul. Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty nine tells us about what it's like to be in Him with the beautiful picture of ox in oxen. I just heard Brian Regan in my head, sorry. Moosen, mooses. Whatever the plural of oxes is, oxen. If you don't know what that is, go look at Brian Regan. You'll laugh this afternoon. Very funny, very funny. But that that there's this beautiful picture, these animals plowing together, and Jesus uses that analogy and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In other words, get beside me, get in with me, and walk with me. And he says, you will find rest for your soul. Basically, Jesus says, come plow with me. Come work with me. And you will walk beside me. And you will know what it's like to be with me. To be in me. And he says then. You'll work really hard and be wore out. No. You'll find rest for your souls. In Christ there is satisfaction at the soul level. And we find rest for weary souls. In Christ is the reality that seats us with Christ. And it defines who we are. And what our role is as the community of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it determines our blessings in Christ. So this morning, let's finish unpacking Paul's list of blessings we have in Christ in verse 11 through 14. Number one, number one, found in verse 11 and verse 14. We are blessed with a sure inheritance. We are blessed with a sure inheritance. In Christ. We are blessed with an inheritance that is as sure as the day is long. It's as sure as the fact that the sun rose this morning and it will set this evening. 
This inherit, inheritance that we have is sure because it's located not in us, nor our performance, but located in Christ. I, I love the fact that part of the, part of the beauty of this glorious reality he's presenting to them is, and we're going to see this in just a moment, is their blessing is not in any way connected to their performance. It has nothing to do with their socioeconomic level. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It has everything to do with whose they are. And so this inheritance is sure because it's located in Christ. As Paul was saying, Colossians, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you believe that? Do you seek Christ as though true wisdom and knowledge is held in Him? Is that where you go for wisdom and insight to interpret the world's events? Or do you go to Fox or CNN? Where do you go? The only sure thing is us being in Christ. Our identity in Christ. This word in English, this word that is located here in verse 11 as we translate it, we have obtained an inheritance. It's one word. And it gets five words in English. It's passive voice. Walk with me for a minute. It's passive voice, meaning that our obtaining of any inheritance is the work of the Father, not us. If it were active voice, it's something we went and got. It's passive voice, meaning it is an inheritance that Father has graciously given to us. We didn't actively obtain anything by our work. We have obtained an inheritance, passive voice. It was given, it was given when we were not looking for it. We'll say more about that in just a minute. He uses some interesting language here, and he uses a word that maybe many of us wishes Paul would just quit saying. In him we have obtained an inheritance, comma, having been predestined. That phrase, having been predestined, is also just one word. And guess what? It is also passive voice. <laughs> I love you, Greg. <laughs> this means that the grace of obtaining an inheritance is the glorious gift of Father. And it's connected to the other passive phrase in this sentence, indicating that we have an inheritance because Father has also done the work to predestine us, to rescue us from our lost state. The predestining work of the Father is in no way connected to any sovereign act of humanity. Humans have no sovereignty. Humans have a sphere of unimpeded activity. I put a little footnote here. It's number two. If you go down and look at the footnote, I encourage you to go read Jonathan Edwards' book, The Freedom of the Will. And don't let the title fool you. That's his language. And that's the language I'm using to describe what he describes is this sphere of unimpeded activity in which we can operate, but we don't have the power of ultimates and ends. You don't believe me? Never sin again. Be sovereign over sin. And let me know how that works out for you by five this afternoon.
Only Father can rescue us from the mess that Adam created for us in the fall into the slave market of sin by dragging us with Him. Only God can rescue from that. The surety of our inheritance is based on this predestining work of the Father. And therefore, Father has given us His blessing of the Holy Spirit who marks those He's blessed as His children and as those who are heirs. So, why all this emphasis on the Father's choosing and predestining work in Ephesians chapter 1? Paul, quit using that language. I don't like it. Well, there are reasons. It's not, Paul's not just arbitrary, right? He's not just making stuff up. Ooh, in 2014, I won't make these people uncomfortable. What then? No. Why does Paul use this language other than the fact that it's true? Other than this being a redemptive theme and act of grace, since Cain and Abel and the means by which the Father rescues rescues some people from man's choosing to rebel in the garden, this emphasis would have been particularly appropriate for the readers in Ephesus who are particularly prone to fear the decisive influence of the powers and authorities that they feared before their conversion to Christ. You see, what had happened is these Ephesians truly believed that their destiny was in the hands of the principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is why this is such a theme in the book of Ephesians. That their end was in their hands. So therefore, they practiced the occult. They practiced the magical arts to affect their ends. And Paul is letting them know, Christ is there, not them. And you're seated with Christ in Him. That's who you are. That's whose you are. And your end is not in your hands or theirs. It is in Christ's. And so I would say to you today, don't look at these passages and wish they weren't there. Revel in them as the blessing Paul intends them to be. Because you, apart from him, would still be in Satan and chained to the slave market of sin. And so therefore, it is no curse. It is a great blessing to realize that what I could not rescue myself from, Jesus rescued me from. And this truth counteract... And would counteract the power of the lies and of the evil forces in the heavenly places that these Ephesians feared. And since Christ is seated there, and we are seated with Him through the sovereign grace of the Father, we don't have to fear our destiny being altered by spiritual forces. Our journey and our security is set in Christ. Christ. There's no reason to fear. No reason to worry. No reason to fret. Jesus has it. Settle. So Paul reassures these Ephesians and us that we're secure in the glorious predestining work of the Father. But he's done more. He's done more. He says here that we have the Holy Spirit. How are we to know? How are we to know that we'll receive this inheritance through the predestining work of the Father in his kingdom? How are we supposed to know this? He answers the question. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How do we know? 
we received the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that we would receive the Holy Spirit when He ascended to the Father. And as the church waited in obedience, the counselor, the teacher, the gift giver, the empowerer, the equipper, His very presence, the Lord Jesus and the Father's very presence was given to His church. And the Holy Spirit took up His post as the third person of the Trinity, as Father, Son, with us. Holy Spirit is the mark of salvation. Holy Spirit is the litmus test on fellowship between believers. Holy Spirit is the reign of Christ among us. We, by His presence, can discern whose each other is and the fact that we are family. Paul says as much when he says, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. But what does the Holy Spirit guarantee? What does He guarantee for us? He's predestined us. The Holy Spirit is the mark of that work. But what is He guaranteeing? What is this guarantee that we have? Well, He guarantees this beautiful thing, an inheritance. An inheritance. This word inheritance, remember I told you it's passive voice. In other words... And this is funny, this is an interesting word, because it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. I just always read that word, and oh, inheritance. Like, what I just got from my mother and father who passed away. Sold all their stuff, I got an inheritance. That's not what it means. It's very interesting. This word means to assign by lot, or to make a mark. And this is big. The idea is that of one's portion being partitioned off and marked. That's the idea. No commentator that I looked at touched at all on this question. And this is a question I was asking. Okay? What's my inheritance? Right? What's my inheritance? Perhaps it's because it's clear from the context. And all the commentators thought, well, duh. What's wrong with you, Jolly? Ah, it's Silver Creek. That's what's wrong with you. Just, just figure it out. I don't know. Perhaps it's because Paul doesn't explicitly answer that question. Either way, we've got to ask and seek to answer the question, what is our inheritance? Well, we could easily answer that question with Jesus' instruction in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, that sounds like an easy answer. But Jesus' instruction is not to be isolated from the meta-narrative of the gospel as though our reward were simply gaining things or locations isolated from the larger purpose of those things or locations. Are you following me? You tracking a little bit? Jesus doesn't intend for me to take Matthew 5, 5 and isolate it to simply getting things. I believe the inheritance is right under our nose here in the text, and we've been talking about it for weeks. The inheritance isn't a place absent for the full meaning of the place. I crafted that sentence on purpose, and I hope you hear it. The inheritance is not a place absent for the full meaning of the place. Is Jesus right? Yeah. He's right. We do inherit the earth. But do we just get a new heaven and a new earth with no plan or purpose for it? 
Here, you've been faithful. Take a new heaven and a new earth. It's all yours. Is that what it's for? Is just to have a place? Negative. The new heaven and the new earth. The place where the meek will dwell. This place has a grand and glorious purpose. And that grand and glorious purpose and that inheritance is point number two. We receive the blessing of an inheritance of a kingdom community united in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Let me just go back. Let me read verse 7 through verse 11. I want you to hear this. Lord, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We're redeemed and we're forgiven and we're given wisdom and insight to know the Father's will wrapped up in His purpose that He set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. We inherit a community of kingdom citizens as family all located in Christ together, with Christ together, in person with Christ together, in the eternal kingdom where we will dwell with Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity with no more division or sin or rebellion or anything to distort the people of God, the place of the people of God, and the relationship of the people of God to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful. Did you hear it? Did you get it? Our inheritance isn't just a place. It is the full uniting of all things in Christ, us being part of that together with all of us in Christ together in full unity on the new heaven and the new earth, accomplishing what He set us there to accomplish with nothing to hinder. That's our inheritance. That's Eden regained. That's everything prior to the fall with nothing to pervert it. That is our inheritance. You and I are each other's inheritance in Christ. All those in our people group are our inheritance in Christ. We are theirs in Christ. That together there will be one people of God united in Christ, dwelling together with Christ face to face on His new created order at the consummation of all things. Verse 12 uses we. Indicating... According to most people, Paul's native people, the Jewish folks. He says, so that we, who were the first hope in Christ, might be the praise of His glory. Then verse 13, he transitions this pronoun from we to you. Indicating the Gentiles who have also heard the gospel and likewise been sealed with the Spirit. And then he does this really cool thing in verse 14. He transitions the pronoun now to our. Indicating that Jew and Gentile have now been brought near together as one people of God and fellow citizens. And this is Ephesians two eleven to 22. That we're no longer we or you, we're now our. And been brought near in Christ as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our inheritance is a kingdom of family united together in Christ. 
and will one day have Eden regained where we will again walk with Father, Son, and Spirit in the garden, in the cool of the day. There will no longer be a rebellion to contend with. That is our glorious hope. That is where we're going. That is the end. This is our inheritance. And it is quite secure due to the predestining work of the Father to secure us, place His Spirit in us, and set us in Christ. The mission is set. The mission is secure. The mission will be accomplished. We will not fail. We cannot fail. We are the people of Jesus Christ, united under one banner of Jesus Christ. We are unity in diversity, and unity in diversity is doable. Often our fallen flesh prevents this work. But we wrestle with trying to take our share from this present world. And we wrestle with those values of this present world. And we often find all kinds of heartache and distress and disillusionment because it's broken and we just don't want to admit that we love it more than the coming kingdom. And part of the Spirit's job in sanctifying us is to make us delight more in the kingdom that is to come than what is crumbling around us now. And the promise is that Holy Spirit will get that done. Do you love the coming kingdom more than you love this present world system? Or are you in the rat race of trying to get as much of this world system as you can, missing out on the kingdom to come? What did Jesus say? Gain this world and lose your soul. Because the kingdom is a pearl of great price. Once one discovers it, they sell everything to go get that pearl because it's worth more than everything they own. It's a treasure hidden in the field. When one finds it, they realize, oh my gosh. And they go and sell everything they have and buy that field because the treasure is worth more than everything they own. The coming kingdom, the unity of us together in Christ is of more value than anything in our possession. Now, do you really believe that? Do you live that way? Paul says this is our inheritance. We get Jesus and each other in Christ in a coming kingdom that cannot be shaken. The level of the sickness of the soul is measured by how one responds to that, either in disappointment or joy. Does that disappoint you? Or were you looking for jewels and gold? And a crown that Jesus would set on your head because you did something good. Rather than each other in Christ in a new kingdom. That's our inheritance. In Christ, together, no longer you, no longer we are together in Christ. But, number three, us together in Christ get something really cool. We do get something. But the getting something's not the point. It's the byproduct of being in Christ. See, this is what you've got to get. Often we do this like bait and switch thing with people. We try to do evangelism. We try to get people to come to Jesus because Jesus will fix stuff. That's bait and switch. Jesus never promises to just fix stuff. He may get you killed. 
Jesus might get you killed. He even said like, when I set you before people, don't worry about what you're to say in that hour. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Just be faithful. Meaning you're going to be brought on trial. Somebody's going to ask you questions. Somebody's going to probe and pick and prod. Don't worry about what to say. Holy Spirit will give you what to say in the moment. Don't sell Jesus by telling people Jesus will fix everything. You sell Jesus by telling people Jesus is better than life. If you lose life, you gain life. Jesus is king of the universe. Come to him all you who are weary and heavy laden and he will give you rest. And he will give you a new heart. He'll take out a heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in his ways and love him more than life. He'll cause you to want to do radical things for his glory. He will take you out of the seat of your life and put him in the seat of your life and you'll be glad to bow down and worship him because he's better than life. Tell the truth. So you don't sell what you get. You put in front of people the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified because he is the treasure. His kingdom is the pearl of great price. But... Understand that those who come after Christ do get some pretty cool jack. Point number three. We will be, le- we will be blessed with full face-to-face Trinitarian fellowship in the coming kingdom. We will be blessed with full face-to-face Trinitarian fellowship in the coming kingdom. There's an interesting phrase here in verse 14. Let me read just verse uh, 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, comma, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it. Now, when I read that, I thought, whoa, wait a second, until? You understand the implication of until? Isn't it easy to just read over stuff in the Bible and it just comes through in one ear and out the other and just move on to the next thing because you want to get to Ephesians 2.10? You know, are those passages you really like and you read over stuff until we acquire possession of it. Paul says here that we have the Holy Spirit to seal us as a people of God. And that is our guarantee that we'll receive the inheritance. But Paul says that we have this gift until we acquire possession of it Speaking about the inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit until we get the inheritance. In other words, we'll have the Holy Spirit as a seal until we get the inheritance. So, when we get the inheritance, we lose the Spirit. Question mark. I try to say that like the question mark I wrote it. I'm not. So, when we get the inheritance, we lose the Holy Spirit? No. We gain more. Listen to this very carefully. The grand meta narrative of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration... Is how the plan of Father is working out at His direction. We're in this in-between time of redemption and restoration. There was creation, there was the fall, the breaking of all things. Jesus has been setting out since then, fixing all things. Until the fullness of time, when He would come and die. And begin to unite all things under Himself. And He is finishing that work to the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. As Matthew 24, 14 states, when the gospel has been preached to all nations, then, then, and only then does the end come. 
But the end in the end, it's the beginning of the restoration of all things. It's not done. As a result of the work of redemption, we have transformed souls with broken and sin-corrupted bodies that are one day going to be completely repaired. Praise God. And we have Holy Spirit in these jars of clay to show the all-surpassing powers from the Father and not from us. However, the Scriptures promise us a day when these jars of clay will be transferred to an eternal kingdom. Revelation 21 captures the event. So if you had your Bible, flip there. Now, if you're here long enough, you remember we preached through Revelation a couple of years ago. And I have lamented ever since that I only took a year. <laughs> Chapter 21 may need six months. Revelation 21 captures this glorious restoration, this fixing of all things, Jesus will complete redemption and then He will restore all things in the eternal kingdom of heaven. And verse 11 in chapter 20 is where the transition starts to take place. And this is chapter 20, verse 11, transitioning to chapter 21 where the restoration happens. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who is seated on it. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So if you have an imagination, and I do, I see there's judgment. And He gathers, verse 12, all the dead, great and small, in their books. And, and But earth and sky is gone now. So in my picture, I see people suspended with no earth underneath their feet. I mean, it's kind of what it's gone away. And then judgment takes place. The righteous for eternal life. And those who aren't righteous in Christ are cast in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. And death is thrown in the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And then, verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's kind of like, no, duh. This fallen created order, gone. My people remaining. And what does He do? He puts new earth under their feet. Boom! New heavens, new earth. And then John begins to describe the new heavens and the new earth. And if you remember back to Revelation, we preached through that, there's way too much to deal with now. This apocalyptic language that John uses, we're not familiar with reading and it's different. We need to train ourselves to read and exposit apocalyptic language in the Bible. Daniel and Revelation are two genres of apocalyptic writing in the New Testament. Or in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. I think those messages are still up online. Revelation 21, you can go listen. So I don't have the time to go over all that now. But among the things that Jesus gives John to tell the church here is verse 22 to 25 and Chapter 21. I'm going to read it and I want you to hear it. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Don't need a temple anymore. Why? Because He's present. 
in full form. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. Are the nations abolished in the kingdom? No. Just redeemed. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no temple anymore. Why? Because Father and Son are there face to face. You ever paid attention to the garden in Genesis? Who walked in the garden in the cool of the day face to face fellowship with Adam and Eve? Jesus did. There's no longer separation of sin between God and man. And there's no longer any need for Holy Spirit to sanctify and counsel and teach us. Because what we've received by faith will become sight. I'm sure Holy Spirit's there. He's an equal member of the Trinity. But the need to seal us as fathers is gone. We will be fathers face to face. What Moses could not see, we will gaze upon. No backside glory. Full frontal glory. Face to face. No temple glory face to face. Our inheritance of realizing our in Christ and fully united in the kingdom will be completed and we will spend timeless eternity fulfilling the mandate to subdue the new heaven and the new earth and walk with Father, Son, and Spirit face to face. There's your inheritance. That's why heaven's cool. Not some goofy spirit place where you float around all day and sing songs. Not going there. But this new heaven, this new earth, face-to-face communion with God, living in a created order that isn't broken anymore, with fellowship that's not broken anymore, face-to-face with Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm in. I'm in. And I would say to us, the level to which that livens our soul is the level to which we really get the depths of the gospel. Because that's what we've saved for. Not just to escape this life or get as much as we can in this life or make this life a little better. But to have that, what was taken in the garden by rebellion, regained. That's awesome. That's our inheritance. And that's what we're doing. When we do evangelism, it's not simply getting people to go to heaven. It's bringing people to Jesus. The one who will... Heaven won't satisfy a soul. Jesus will. Listen, if you are looking forward to heaven because it's got gold streets and a mansion there for you, you won't be there. You will be in the kingdom because Jesus is there. And that is the object of your treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field. Not the coolness of what you get. When you get Jesus, everything else gets thrown in. If you're looking for everything else thrown in, you don't get Jesus. Our great inheritance is we get God. We're in Christ. And we get each other united in Christ in one kingdom.
and the meek will inherit the earth. And then finally, we've been blessed in Christ that we may praise Father, Son, and Spirit. We've been blessed in Christ that we may praise Father, Son, and Spirit. The word to in 6, verse 6, verse 12, and the verse 14 indicates purpose. You guys know that. You speak English. The blessing of being in Christ and the blessings resulting of being in Christ don't end in themselves. Those graces are to move us to Romans 11, 1, worship. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These blessings we have of being in Christ are there not as an end in themselves, but in the purpose of us praising Him for His glory by laying our lives down as a sacrifice of praise because He's worth it. We'll sell everything to buy the field because the treasure's worth more than what we have. You feeling it? You got it? These blessings are given that we may praise Him. Not simply in singing a song, but in laying our lives down. And people who lay their lives down then sing the song. They sing the song. Don't miss here. They sing the song. There's 150 of them in the middle of your Bible. Written as lives were laid down because Jesus is better. Even when it hurts. Sometimes they sound sad. Sometimes they sound like the heights of joy. But those who lay their lives down at the feet of Christ will sing. No doubt. These graces are given to move us to this Romans 11.1 worship that's full-bodied in action and word. And that leads to Romans 11.2 sanctification. That we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We were made to be a living sacrifice that sings of the excellencies of the King. And when we worship like that, we will continue to be transformed in our thinking as the Spirit unites us all in one mind unto Christ. Those are our blessings in Christ Jesus to the praise of His glory. Now I invite you, would you praise Him because He's worthy? Not because you get anything out of it, but simply because He's worthy of that. Let's pray together. Father, for Your glory and our joy, we ask You now to move us, Your people, to praise. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, please, 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 do that work among Your people where we taste Your grace, where we feel and enjoy Your goodness. Move our lives to sacrifice and our lips to praise. Instruct us and teach us. Counsel us in Your way. Holy Spirit, I pray You would tear down barriers. I pray You would tear down strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. For even Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. So I pray you tear those things down. Anywhere in which we have believed or thought wrongly of you, destroy it, please. 
Holy Spirit, remove any barrier that keeps us from laying our lives down as a living sacrifice and singing to you because you are worthy. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would repair and fix anything broken. Pray you'd overcome our stubborn, unrepentant, rebellious hearts and anything. Make us soft and pliable. Give us love for each other. Unity in all things for your glory. And let us drink deeply of who we are in Christ. And then would you send us to the work. We pray in Jesus' name.